Our Old Testament lesson comes from Psalm 31. Hear now the word of our God from Psalm 31. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also, for my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Psalm 31, in a sense, is drawing together all the themes that we've seen so far in Book 1. This last section of, of Book 1, Psalms 31 to 41, return to the theme of refuge that we saw at the beginning of Book 1. But, as you often see in the Scriptures, when you return to a theme, it's now with everything else that we've been seeing woven in. Many of those early psalms of refuge in book one, where we might say simple psalms of refuge. Here's my situation. Help! Now we're seeing psalms that, uh, as we'll see, they're a little longer for the most part. Because they're weaving back in the themes that we've seen throughout the rest of book one. Now, 
I, I think I can promise you my sermons won't necessarily be any longer because, well, I know not everybody is always here for every sermon. I mean, there's, there's enough that, that's been building up that we'll be able to go through them just as quickly because these are themes that continue to be brought out and woven together. And that is, as I, over the years I've just realized in preaching that if, you know, if you don't have time to cover one thing in the sermon, that's okay. There's next week. You know, there's, there's a, it'll, it'll come back again. That's the way God's word works. There's, these themes get woven, woven, woven. And, and that's part of why I like preaching a single sermon on a whole psalm. Because as much as sometimes I'm like, oh, but there's so much going on here. It's also, but these themes are all over the Psalter. They're all over the scriptures. And so they're going to come back again. So that's, that's sort of how I think about how to approach this. And as we've been seeing in book one, these songs all take the standpoint of the king is on the throne. These are Psalms of David, and they take the standpoint of David and the Davidic king is on the throne. And yet, things are not as they should be. We are not as we should be. And as we've seen in book one, the Lord's anointed, the Lord's Messiah, is the one who ascends the hill of the Lord. He dwells at God's right hand. And, of course, we now see a little more clearly perhaps than even David did that our Lord Jesus sits at God's right hand. And we who sing these songs with him have confidence because we wait on the Lord. I, I, hope, I hope that you're starting to get to a point where as we read them, you're noticing first person singular and second person plurals and all these, what the, the pronouns that are going on in the Psalms of David because... I hope you, some of you maybe, maybe noticed that most of this psalm is first-person singular. It's the Davidic I, David speaking, the Lord's anointed speaking. And then at the end he changes over and then he starts to speak to you, plural, all of you. You see, this is how these songs were written for Israel to sing with the son of David as the first-person singular, with the Davidic voice as the first-person singular. They were being taught to see themselves in David. Because David could see at some level that this is all about his greater son. That we come in Jesus, the son of David, who is the one who sings these songs and brings us together with him into singing these songs. It's why, as we go through, you'll oftentimes notice that I, I revert, you know, sometimes I focus on how Jesus is the singer of the psalm, and then sometimes I'm like, and we get to sing it too. So I get, so because that's what God has done by His Spirit. He has joined us to the life of His Son. And so, yeah, there are moments when we're sort of like, well, that's not really me, that's Him. Well, yes, it is. And I am joined to Him. And so it becomes my song. And David teaches us how to do this at the end of the song when he says, Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. I, David says, have been waiting on the Lord. Our Lord Jesus, as he hung from on the cross, was waiting on the Lord. And he quotes this psalm, Into your hand I commit my spirit. And Psalm 31 is a song for those who are bearing the cross. 
It is a song for you who by the grace of God are denying yourself, taking up your cross and following Jesus because you see by faith that because God has delivered Jesus and raised him up from death, therefore he will raise up those who have been united to Christ by faith. Our New Testament lesson comes from Hebrews chapter 5. We'll start in chapter 4, verse 14. I've, I've actually wanted to use this passage for like half the Psalms in book 1, but it fits so many of them. Hear now the word of the Lord from Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed to him who said, You are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered, and being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This is the word of the Lord. Hebrews tells us how Jesus sang Psalm 31. Jesus is the one who cried out to his his Father, and the Father heard him. It's why Jesus could cry out, as, as we heard in Psalm 22, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then shortly thereafter, quote Psalm 31, Into your hands I commit my spirit. The same Jesus who was forsaken by the Father committed himself to the same Father because he knew who he was and he knew where he was. He was in book one of the Psalms. (laughs) He was living in the middle of what David had said was the whole point of what God is doing in history. Or, to summarize it more succinctly, Help! Because that's where he was, and indeed, that's where we are. Our Lord Jesus hung on the cross and sang Psalm 31. My friends have abandoned me. People are telling lies about me. My life is in danger. They're plotting against me. And it's not just other people doing this to me. My body is failing. I feel in my own body these afflictions. But... Throughout Psalm 31, these cries for help are regularly blended with affirmations of trust. Into your hand, I commit my spirit. In the midst of all this, 
I know that you are the one who is making all things right. And so therefore, I'm, I know I'm in the right place. Jesus could even say that from the cross. I know I'm in the right place. And when he calls us to deny ourselves, take up our cross and follow him, you can be confident you're in the right place. Even in the middle of the cross, even in the middle of affliction and suffering, you're in the right place. You're in the place where God would have you in order to learn, to grow, to become more like Jesus. Now, there are many psalms of the cross. We, we, we heard Psalm 22 recently, Why Have You Forsaken Me? We'll hear at the end of Book 1, Psalm 41, the, the song of the betrayal. Psalm 69, the, they gave me sour wine to drink. And there are many other psalms of the cross. But Psalm 31 is the final psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross. Into your hand I commit my spirit. Jesus sings Psalm 31 as a song of confidence, a song of hope from the middle of suffering. God will not abandon me. I know that in the end, God will redeem me from the pit. Now, you may notice in your bulletins that the outline has two points, and yet the first point has two subdivisions of three points each, and you might wonder, is there a typo? Is there something missing here? No. This, uh, one commentator said, well, that this is, this is a song that gets halfway through and then says, um, let's try that again. And so I was like, you know, let's just, let's make that clear in the bulletin. It, you know, point one, A, B, C, and then, well, A, B, C again, because it's not a different point. It's the same point. And so often, isn't that true in life? How often in your lives are you, you, you pray and you, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a complete prayer. I've got, my, I've got my petition, I've got my reason, I've got the reason. It's, it's, it's a complete prayer. And at the end of the prayer, I'm still in the same place I was before. So let's, let's do that again. Sometimes you need to pray the same prayer twice. Not the same words. He, he has a whole new way of saying it. But it's the same point. And there are days like that. And for our Lord Jesus, the cross was a day like that. And indeed, the first point, help, is reinforced by the doubling of that cry. Verses 1 through 8 move from, from the plea for help to the reason for crying out to God, and then in a sense to the occasion for the plea and the result that you have not delivered me to my enemies. And then verses 9 to 18 follow the same basic pattern a second time. And then finally at the end, David turns and addresses us and says, God has done what he promised. Therefore, love the Lord. Because when God hears the prayer of his anointed, when God hears the cries of the Son of David, our Lord Jesus, he assures us from his heavenly throne that because the Lord has heard him when he was besieged by his foes, therefore we may have confidence that God will hear us when we cry to him in Jesus' name. Psalm 31 begins with a cry for help. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Uh, the theme of refuge is important in the Psalms, and, and particularly in Book 1. And here, David says, My enemies are closing in. The city is besieged, verse 21. I have nowhere else to turn. When everything around you feels like it's collapsing, when you feel helpless and afraid, in you, O Lord, do I take refuge. 
Notice that David does not start by saying, you are my refuge. No, he starts by saying, be my refuge. Be a strong fortress to save me. This is not, at the beginning, a confident statement of assurance, but a cry of desperation. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. In your righteousness, deliver me. Only then in verse 3 does David then say, Because you are my rock and my fortress. There are many, many times in life when you may not feel like God is your rock. You may feel like you're adrift at sea and there's nothing holding you down. There are times when you feel very much alone and ashamed. Why then does David plead with God to be his rock of refuge and his fortress? Because you are my rock and my fortress. And for your name's sake, you lead me and guide me. Why do you ask God to deliver you? Why do you ask God to save you? Because He is our Deliverer. He is our Savior. And it's not for anything in us. Notice here David says, It's for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net. Or perhaps you deliver me from the net. The net that they have hidden for me. For you are my refuge. David's problem is that his enemies are hunting him. The, the city is surrounded. They're, they're trying to ensnare him. And so he prays. Not only for deliverance from that net, but also for his constant need of protection, his constant need to, for refuge in God. And so he says in verse 5, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed, redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Now, this may sound odd at first. If you have redeemed me, then why am I worried about being ensnared? It, it sounds like you have saved me, you have delivered me, but I'm still in the middle of it. This is sometimes referred to as the prophetic perfect, <laughs> that David is, is so confident about the future that he can speak as though it's already happened. The Lord is a faithful God. Jesus quotes this verse from the, from the cross because Jesus understands who he is. He understands where he is in the story. He is the Lord's anointed. He is the one of whom David spoke. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You might think that Jesus, oh, on the cross, he couldn't say, you have redeemed me. Could he? But such is the confidence of our Lord Jesus. Such was the confidence of David, and you see this all through the prophets, that they'll speak as though it's already happened. Why? Because that's the sort of God you serve. When, when Paul says in Romans 8, those whom he foreknew, he, he also predestined, those who he justified, he also glorified. Wait, he also he glorified? We're not glorified yet, are we? That's how confident Paul is that it, those whom he justified, he also glorified, past tense. Yeah. You weren't even born yet, and Paul says you were glorified. <laughs> because he, that's the sort of God we serve. What God says he will do, he will do. He, the Lord is a faithful God. Jesus quotes this verse from the cross because he sees 
This is where I am. Yes, he experienced the forsakenness of the cross. He was stricken, smitten, and afflicted. But he experienced the forsakenness of the cross as the one to whom the promises were made. He knows where this story is going. Now, verses 6 through 8 then speak of, of the result. As Verse 6, he says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. And we start to hear something about those who are pursuing him. It, it appears as though in this case, I mean, in many cases, David's talking about fellow Israelites who are after him. It looks in this case as though these are idolaters, which, yeah, it's not, they're not Israelites. But this, it's, these may be foreign enemies pursuing him. And David says, they are idolaters, but I trust in the Lord. And because I trust in the Lord, David goes so far as to say, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. Now, you oftentimes hear people saying, love the sinner, hate the sin. But here David says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. Not just I hate the sin of idolatry, but I hate idolaters. How should we understand this? Well, we've already seen this a couple times in book one. In, in Psalm 5, verse 5, he says that God hates all evildoers. Psalm 11, verse 5, says that God hates the wicked and the one who does violence. And those who love God should love what God loves and hate what God hates. So what does it mean that we hate those who pay regard to worthless idols? Well, as we've been seeing in a couple of times recently, think about how God's anger works. Why is God angry? Why does God hate idolaters? Because he loves all that he made. And because he loves all that he made, he hates that which is destroying what he made. And so... In the same way, we are called to love all those made in the image of God, which means we love every human being on the face of the earth. And for the same reason, we hate every human being who is destroying what God made good. Uh, yeah, that means we hate ourselves too. Make sure, you, make sure you get this before you start taking this and saying, Oh, Pastor Peter says we should go hate, the, hate, those, hate those people over there. Well, just make sure you also hate yourself properly first. Because every time I sin, I am harming the image of God. Every time I sin, I'm sinning against... I mean, David says, against you, you only have I sinned. David properly abhors himself. He hates himself in that sense. We should hate ourselves because we have harmed others. That should bring us to repentance. That should bring us to turn from that. And it's only then that we will have any sort of proper sense of how we should hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. When I see my fellow man worshiping idols, I, I pity him because he's following the path to destruction. I love him, and I hope that he will pray and learn to turn from his ways. And yet, because he hates the one that I love above all else, I have to hate him for what he's doing to God and others. And that grieves me. And if there's anything I could do to stop him from destroying himself and others, I would do it. Anger, hatred, after all, 
is given to us as a gift to motivate us to do something. Our problem is that we're rather bad at using anger well. And so that's why sometimes you hear people saying, oh, well, just, you know, hatred's just bad, anger's just bad. No, it's not bad. It's just that we use it badly. And so how do we, and how should we, express our hatred well? I would suggest that David actually tells us how to express your hatred well. It's called verse 7. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction, because you have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. How do you express your hatred of the wicked properly? Rejoice and be glad in God's steadfast love. Because when you rejoice and are glad in God's steadfast love, then you're in a position to be able to engage with the situations and the people that you face because when you're, if you're just focused on, oh, these people are doing those things, then you've lost sight of, what, of the love that you said you had for God. Love God. And when you love God, you rejoice in Him. And therefore, whatever follows will follow from that joy and gladness in God's steadfast love. And then you'll be able to express that properly. Uh, if you've ever read C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy, it's, this, is, this is the point in Paralandra where, where Ransom sort of is going up against the unman and you've got this, basically Ransom realizes, ah, there's a reason for, I mean, what, was, what was anger given for, for us? You know, holy hatred, righteous anger wells up in him and he's like, oh, this is what it's for. You have to read it and get the rest of it. But, but that's, but it, he, I mean, as, as so often, Lewis just gets how to articulate these things and paint a picture that helps us see clearly what, what, is, what is righteous anger. And um, it's not, it, and, and part of the reason why I'm so convinced that David intends verse 7 to be the answer for how you express holy hatred, because Lewis says, you know, what, what does Ransom do next? You know, in the name of the, of, of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, here goes. I mean, amen. And, you know, so, and then you have to, you know, there's the rest of it. But, in spite of my affliction and distress, indeed, in spite of the fact that Jesus says that I'm hanging on the cross, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have set my feet in a broad place. Huh. He's hanging on a cross. You have set my feet on a broad place. His feet aren't even touching the ground. The very real distress of my current situation must be seen in the light of the salvation of the Lord for which I wait. And the root of my confidence is found in God's chesed, His steadfast love, His covenant faithfulness. God will be loyal to His promises. He will stand by His word. So, having finished his first point, David decides, no, okay, no, 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 let's go back, let's do this again. Because some songs need to be sung again. Sometimes you finish praying and you realize nothing has changed, I'm still in the same place. So let's pray again. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. Once again, he is crying out for mercy. Grief and sorrow characterize my life. Indeed, it's my own fault. My strength fails because of my iniquity. 
And you might wonder, how could Jesus take these words upon his lips? They weren't his iniquities personally, but in the imputation of sin that happens on the cross, all the sins of his people were laid upon him. When he takes our sin upon himself, he can say these words. My strength fails because of my iniquity. Not because he was personally guilty. He hadn't done them. But now he is legally guilty. Because God has laid on him the iniquities of us all. And if God has laid on him the iniquities of us all, they are now his iniquities. Not, not that he is personally guilty for them. He is, he's an innocent man. But they're now his. Because he bore our iniquities. They have been laid on him. And his bones are wasting away. And this is where for us, we need to recognize, you know, we, we unlike Jesus, these are our sins. We have committed them. It's not just what others have done to me. I cannot blame them for my situation. This is not merely suffering and misery. It's also sin and guilt. And that's where, when you, when you look at your situation to cure your soul, you need to see clearly your situation, but then take an even clearer look at God. And, and that's what David does in the following verses. He takes a clear look at his situation. Verse 11 to 13. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. Have you ever felt like everyone was ignoring you, avoiding you? Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. If you struggle with depression and loneliness, remember that God inspired this and so many other passages of Scripture for you. Because God wants you to see that you're not alone. This is the experience of many others, indeed, this is the, in, the experience of those who are now inspired by God, by the Holy Spirit, to put words to this so that you can take those words upon your own lips and put your experience into this song and sing it with them, indeed sing it with Jesus, who took that upon himself as well. Of course, in Jesus' case, he was abandoned by his friends and his enemies plotted against him. Herod and Pilate, the chief priests, conspired to put him to death. And for those of us who are in Christ, we need to see that, yes, the world, the flesh, and the devil conspire against us. And those who hate Jesus will also hate us. So what do we do? How do we, you know, well, in the midst of our situation, in the midst of our misery, what do we say? Verse 14. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. 
John Calvin points out that David was indeed sunk in the darkness of sorrow and in dreadful affliction. Yet the hidden light of faith still glimmered inwardly in his heart. He sighed under his heavy load of trial. Yet he still had strength left to call upon God. There is nothing more difficult when we see our faith despised by the whole world than to direct our language to God alone and to rest on the testimony of our conscience that He is our God. What is your biggest problem as you look at your situation? You may come up with all sorts of different answers, but I'll, I'll ask you to keep pushing that one back another step and another step and another step until we get to the, what's your biggest problem? You don't love God. I once said that in a sermon, and there was a woman sitting right about there. And she had this look on her face. She didn't say anything, but I could hear, I could, I could hear from her face. How dare you say that about me? Of course I love God. So, I kind of veered off what I was planning on saying next. I was like, well, how do I know that you don't love God? Well, if you loved God with all your heart and all your soul and all your strength, you'd never sin. Because if you're loving God with everything, eh, you got nothing left to sin with. So that means that somewhere in your life, there's something else that you're loving more than God. And since that's the greatest commandment, well, that's our greatest problem. And in, in fact, pretty much everything else in life, when, when you just trace it back and sort of look, it's like, yeah, actually, that does wind up being our biggest problem in every other, in every other sin we commit. It all comes down to we don't love God. And that's, and that's why verse 14 is so important. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. Where we get in trouble, where we always get in trouble, is when we don't love God with all our heart. When something else becomes more important to us than God. And we're not even very good at recognizing it about us. Because we usually say, Oh, you are my God, but I can handle this. You are my God, but I, I don't think you're going to handle it the way I want you to. You may be right about that. Very often God does not handle it the way you want him to. But will you trust him? David says, verse 15, My times are in your hand. All my times, my times are in your hand when things are going well as well as when things are going badly. In the morning when I'm drinking my coffee, my times are in your hand. In the middle of that difficult conversation, my times are in your hand. When I'm fearful and anxious, my times are in your hand. When I'm hanging on a cross, my times are in your hand. And because my times are in your hand, rescue me 
from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine upon your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. David sees, our Lord Jesus sees, that our confidence is found in the steadfast love, the chesed of our God. And he asks for the Lord's blessing. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Notice we we trust God to do this. I call upon you. Lord, deliver, protect. Well, now we finally get to the psalmist's second point. Why do I call upon Him? Why do I trust God? Verse 19. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you. Notice here he shifts to now referring to us. It's not just, it's not just David referring to himself as the Lord's anointed, but now he broadens the scope to include us in his song. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. The psalmist is in the middle of an incredibly painful situation, which our Lord took upon his own lips from the cross. And yet even from the cross, as we, as we see in our deepest miseries, we can say, how abundant is your goodness? As we look at the terror that surrounds us on every side, remember God's abundant goodness. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And that is why the psalmist blesses the Lord. Blessed be the Lord. For he has wondrously shown his chesed, his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. Indeed, from the way the psalm is written, he's still in a besieged city. For he has wondrously shown his chesed to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight. But you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Our Lord Jesus was cut off in death, but death could not hold him. And God heard the voice of his pleas for mercy and raised him from the dead. And when God hears the voice of David, when God hears the voice of his anointed king, then Jesus says to us, Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Because Jesus is the one who said, into your hands I commit my spirit, now you can love the Lord. Because God was merciful to Jesus and raised him up from death, Therefore, the Lord preserves the faithful. Because Jesus trusted in the Lord and was seated in glory at God's right hand, therefore you can be strong and take courage as you wait for the Lord. Paul says in Philippians that I want to know Christ and be conformed to the fellowship of His sufferings that I might also be conformed to the likeness of His resurrection glory. You see, this is where the cross is good for you. The cross is what we need 
for us to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. And so we should not shrink from the cross, but recognize that what Jesus is doing in the cross, He's conforming you to the likeness of Himself. And so yes, we suffer with Christ. We walk through the valley of the shadow of death. But when we do, we walk there with Jesus. So be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. Let us pray. We love you, Lord. Not very well. Not with all our heart. Not with all our strength. But we love you. And we thank you for your steadfast love. And we ask that you would forgive us for not loving you. That you would help us by your Holy Spirit to love you, O Lord. That we might find our our strength and our courage in your beloved Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us and gave himself for us. Help us to, to grow daily in the grace and the, and the faith that is at work in every good deed, that we might more and more become those who are made like Jesus in his suffering, that we might also be conformed to his resurrection glory. For we pray this in his name. Amen.